Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander podcast, where birders talk birding. Birding. Birding is a hobby and a passion and some would say an obsession for a lot of people. Uh, during this pandemic time, bird watching and birding has become even more popular. I've read articles in the New York Times and elsewhere uh, that talk about people who really started to notice the birds and gotten into it more and more. Uh, well, birding for most of us is a hobby. Uh, most of us made our living doing something else uh, and find birding a hobby. My wife had a perfect uh, balance in life. My K, my late wife, she was a good birder. She got me into birding, uh, but she had a great balance. She sometimes would be passionate about birding and go birding a lot. Other times it might slip from her life. She'd get involved in other things. That was always something she'd do, but not, uh, not all-consuming. For others of us, birding can be closer to all-consuming. Uh, two of my good birding friends, Bruce Labar and Ken Brown, uh, they are out nearly every day. Birding is very important to them. It's very important to me. It's one of those things that was just always close to the front of our minds. Uh, one of my friends, I won't uh, throw them under the bus here, his wife asked him uh, when they were out for a drive, do you always think about birds? It seems like even with just on a drive, going somewhere, you're always, always looking for birds, noticing the red tail on the wire, trying to identify the little speck far away in the sky. And he said, he thought for a minute, and he said, yeah, I guess I guess I always do think about it. I, it, I guess it is something that's always in my mind. Uh, and I think that's the case for a lot of us. Well, some of us have found a way to make birding not just a hobby, but actually incorporate it into our livelihood. Uh, in my guests, I've had people who've done that in a lot of different ways. Nate Chapel was one of my guests. Nate was a top Tacoma area young birder years ago and got into bird photography and now has a bird photography tour company uh, and uh, takes people who want to learn more about bird photography on tours all over the world. So that's a cool offshoot, a way to incorporate his birding and love for birds into a way to make a living. Christian Hockenlocker, one of my guests on two early shows, uh, did the birding project, did a birding big year, has found lots of ways to make a living uh, and get by doing birding is uh, a primary part of his, his vocation. I've had a number of ornithologists. I have a Roger Letterer and Ursula Valdez, Alex Wong, uh, more recently Peter Wimberger and Dennis Paulson. Uh, and my guest today on this show is Peter Hodum. Peter is a professor in bird conservation, conservation biology at the University of Puget Sound, but he is a birder. And he is a passionate birder of seabirds, two types of seabirds especially, tube noses, what birders call tube noses, birds who have a special gland on the top of their bill to excrete salt so that they can drink salt water and live their whole lives at sea except when they breed. And we don't have penguins in the Northern Hemisphere. We have alcids. Alcids sort of replace penguins in the Northern Hemisphere, and they are seabirds who nest in burrows but spend almost all of their lives at sea, some of them far out at sea, some of them in close to shore, but really spend their lives uh, at sea. And uh, Peter has done research, extensive research, in conservation of these seabirds, uh, both off the coast of Washington, and we talked quite a bit about that on the show today, and off the coast of Chile on the Juan Fernandez Islands uh, and some endemic birds there, and has found a way to incorporate his passion for these seabirds into his occupation and his research, and is really just an incredibly interesting and, and, uh, and 
captivating guest today. I really loved sitting down at the University of Puget Sound, uh, outdoors, socially distanced, and recording this episode of the Bird Bander Podcast number 70 with Peter Hodum. Help me welcome Peter. Hey, Peter. Welcome to the Bird Bander Podcast. Thanks very much, Ed. I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm excited. Here we are on the UPS campus outdoors. A little background noise as a towhee singing, but hopefully won't be too bad of stuff. A jet going overhead, I think. Uh, but in these COVID times, this is this is my studio. Uh, so we're going to make it work. <laughs> and even if it weren't COVID times, it's a delightful morning to be outside. It is very nice. So Peter, uh, you may hear we're near a Joint Base Lewis-McChord uh, and a little uh, jet going overhead. That's okay. Anyway, uh, Peter, you're a professor at UPS. Yes. Uh, tell me about your time here and what your research is involved with. Uh, yeah, so I've been here at the university, it's kind of hard to believe, for 14 years now. And I'm a, I'm a conservation biologist, so my position here is a joint position in the biology department mm -hmm. and the environmental policy and decision-making program. So my teaching spans both programs. So my courses include things like conservation biology, ornithology, okay. uh, biodiversity. I, I pretty much get my dream list of courses to teach, which I'm, I'm really thankful for. It's a great community to be a part of here. It is, and a good little birding spot. Uh, Will Brooks, one of my previous guests, has, has over 100 species right on campus since four years here, so that's yes. nice. Yes, Will is, uh, Will, we will miss Will. Yes. He, he is well, we firmly a legend. He we told him he can't leave. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, he's got to stick around. Uh, and you know Charlie uh, Wright moved back. Do you know Charlie? I, I do know Charlie. I didn't know he's moved back to Tacoma. He, he's in Ruston now. He just moved back to Ruston. And uh, oh. is, so with Charlie and Will around, we're, we're in pretty good shape. We're practically neighbors. We just live across the street, for, across Pearl Street from, from Ruston. So. Okay, nice. Nice. So, Peter, you have done extensive research in uh, seabirds, tube noses, I think. Am I correct? Yes. I've, I've worked on a variety of bird species and islands, but most of the work has been on seabirds uh, and especially tube noses. They're, they're kind of my professional interest and my personal weakness. <laughs> That's a good way to have it. That's a nice combination. For listeners who don't know, explain what tube nose means. Yes, so uh, this is, uh, as Ed knows from previous conversations with me, this is uh, one of my, my biggest passions. Um, this is a group of seabirds that are generally pretty poorly known. Um, they are, the best known family of them is the albatrosses. So it's albatrosses, petrels, shearwaters, diving petrels, and storm petrels. Um, so a fair number of your listeners are probably familiar with with albatrosses. Um, they've been the best studied of this of this order. Um, they're kind of the most notorious. You know, they're they're large, charismatic, graceful species. Um, but petrels and shearwaters and diving petrels and storm petrels are equally magical, uh, just less well known. Yeah. Uh, and they have those tubes in the nose that they excrete salt from. That's kind of where they get their moniker of tube nose. Exactly. So if you, for for all of you that have your field guides right there, open it up to uh, petrels and shearwaters and you'll see that there's a prominent nasal tube on the on the upper um, mandible, on the upper part of the bill. And they use that for olfaction. So they are among the best, the most capable birds in the world in terms of smell, sense of smell. And they also use it, as you mentioned, to excrete salt. So um, this is a cool fact about seabirds, true pelagic seabirds, those that really spend their lives at sea, they never drink fresh water. So they get all of their water from the food they eat, 
and by drinking salt water. And so they have this uh, salt gland, which is up in their skull, which functions as almost a secondary kidney. And that allows them to drink salt water, process it, concentrate the salt and excrete it. So it's almost like a reverse osmosis plant in your head. Um, and that really concentrated saline solution for uh, tube noses is excreted out the tubes, um, almost like a little water pistol. I read somewhere that a lot of other sea animals have salt excreting glands, not just necessarily in their nose. Am I remembering correctly? Yes, yeah, a number, a number of species do. Um, and if you ever watch like a gull that's standing on the shore somewhere and it's just stationary for a while, you'll frequently see a drip of water come off the tip of the bill, just passively. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing in a gull, but they don't, they can't forcibly excrete that saline solution they actually have to let it just drip out passively. So it comes out the nostril on their bill, and then it follows the sulcus, the, the form of the bill right. between the mandibles, right. and then just drips off the tip of the bill. Cool, cool. Uh, so Peter, your work has been at least in significant part, both in Washington State and in South America. Uh, tell me about some of your work in Washington State. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Washingtonian birder, and uh, there, we don't have that many uh, seabirds here that breed here. Tell, tell me what you've uh, worked on. Yes, well it's it's interesting because we kind of have two world, two marine worlds in Washington. We have the Salish Sea, you know, that Strait of Juan de Fuca, uh, Puget Sound, the Strait of Georgia which extends up into mm -hmm. BC, and then we have the outer coast. And there are a few species that overlap but we have a lot richer community of seabirds that breed on the open ocean along the outer coast than we do in the protected waters of the Salish Sea. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of, it's unusual for those of us who live here because we think of being in a northern temperate climate that the greatest diversity is in the summer. That's what we see with songbirds, we see it with a lot of things, and then they migrate out. Right. Well, with marine birds, we get the opposite where things clear out largely in the spring and don't really return to maximum diversity until the winter when we get the grebes and the loons and a lot of the wintering waterfowl coming in to winter. So in the summer months, it's kind of quiet around here. We have rhinoceros auklets, which is one of the species that we study, uh, pigeon guillemots, the hybrid gull complex. Uh, we have cormorants, two, two of the three species breeding in the region. Um, you know, and, and there's not much else going on. Right. Um, out on the outer coast, we have over 11 species. You know, that's where we start to see storm petrels, like fork-tailed and leeches storm petrels, and Cassin's auklets, and the rhinoceros auklets. Um, tufted puffins are out there in greater numbers. They're also still in the, Pug in the Puget Sound or Salish Sea, but they're, they're declining rapidly. They're, we've nearly lost them. I think Smith Island still has some, but Protection S Island not so much anymore? Smith still has some, um, as far as we know, and that's another species that we're focusing our efforts on, primarily because of their endangered status here in the state of Washington. Um, so Smith has the largest remnant population in the Salish Sea. There is a, a vanishingly small breeding population on Protection Island, which, based on the records going back to the eight, 1980s, and the decline seemed to be recent, mm -hmm. um, we've lost probably 90% of that population in two to three decades, three is decades an, or so. Is there an explanation for that? Do you know, is it that's part food of the, or is it 
must be. That's part of the challenge is that they've, for such an iconic species, you know, everybody knows what a puffin is. Sure. And uh, they're remarkably poorly studied. And so when we started working on them about a decade ago or a little bit longer, there was virtually nothing done on them in the region, even including Oregon. Um, and so we're kind of starting from scratch. And that from an ecological perspective, it's kind of exciting. But from a conservation perspective, it's a challenge because how do you come up with meaningful conservation plans without understanding the most important impacts that are affecting the population. Um, we do suspect that it's probably several things, uh, most likely related to food in part. We know that there have been changes in things like herring availability in the Salish Sea. You know, herring have declined in a lot of the in, in a lot of our inland waters. Mm -hmm. um, other changes to, to the food to the food web. Um, have implications. So, food supply, I've heard that uh, a lot of the alcids are eating smaller fish and sometimes bigger fish that are issues for their young to digest. Uh, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, it depends on the species. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. So, you know, in contrast with tufted puffins, which in our region are struggling. They're struggling uh, in California. We're, and we're really on the the periphery of their range. Right. So the core of their distribution is really up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as we get down into the, the, the edges of their range, conditions are presumably not quite as good as they are in the core. Mm -hmm. They probably have less buffer, less flexibility. So they're always gonna be a little bit more vulnerable here than they would be up in Alaska. But mm -hmm. throughout California, Oregon, Washington, and now even up into British Columbia, we've seen significant declines of the species. In contrast, rhinoceros auklets, which really are a puffin, mm -hmm. the common name suggests otherwise, but morphologically, so in terms of their form and their, deal. yeah, they're, they're a puffin, just with a, called an auklet. Um, so they're a deep diving bird. They forage very similarly to puffins, uh, to, yeah, to puffins, and they're doing fine. In fact, the evidence suggests that they've actually increased uh, on Protection Island significantly since the 80s. So puffins have declined, rhinoceros auklets have increased. Why is that? They're both burrow nesting seabirds nesting on the same islands. They're both diving birds that in theory can access similar prey bases mm -hmm. and yet they're doing very different things. I was at uh, Foot Flagler a week ago camping and I in the evening I'd look out uh, from the shore and it was so cool to see. You'd see the, the rhinos with just like five little fish all lined up and you know they're just, and they dive in, they must want one more before they go back to feed their young. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. Fort Flagler is a- How do they do that? It's amazing. It, it is, and Fort Flagler is a great spot. I've uh, kayaked out there as well and it's just great to be out amongst them as they're foraging and coming up. And, and it is remarkable when you think about what it takes for them as a bill-loading seabird, meaning that they're, they don't swallow the fish they bring back. They're actually carrying it in their bills to their to their chick. And we we have records of rhinoceros auklets with 20 fish in their bill. Oh my goodness. 20 sand lance. So the you know the the prospect of diving, holding on to multiple fish in their your bill while actively hunting, catching, and holding an additional fish, doing that multiple times is truly remarkable. They must have a very talented tongue, that's all I can think they, of. Yeah, you know, and so <laughs> we think about 
it's one of the things I love to think about is this idea of just intelligence and and skill. And sure, birds are not going to solve a Rubik's cube, but the skills that they have, you know, the adaptations they have to survive in the world, they're they're all geniuses in their own way. Mm -hmm. They do things that are truly unimaginable to us. You said you're doing research. What what does that mean? What do you do? I, I'm not a uh, research scientist. What sort of things do you do to study them? So up here in Washington, most of our work is focused on rhinoceros auklets and tufted puffins. We're expanding that a little bit to uh, include storm petrels, although this year our field season because of the pandemic has right. been greatly reduced. But the, the main focus is applied research. So we're really interested in conservation-based research and, and doing research that's ecologically based but really grounded in trying to help us understand how populations are doing, and if they are declining, what sort of impacts might be driving those declines, such that we can come up with meaningful, relevant conservation actions. So in that sense, one of the things that we do is we, we track their breeding success year after year. So these are underground nesters, which makes it hard to do because we can't see what they have. Right. But thanks to technology and some clever colleagues, we have some tools that allow us to actually, in a non-invasive way, know what's going on in their burrows underground. And mm -hmm. these are burrows that the birds dig themselves, which is Another equally impressive. Thing. But uh, one of them is an infrared camera probe. So the basic idea is that there's a small infrared camera. It's about the size of your thumb. It's attached to a, a flexible cable that is a meter, it's two meters long, so about six feet long. And then you have either a head-mounted display goggles or a tablet that you can, and you see the image in real time, either in the goggles or on the tablet. Mm -hmm. And with a little bit of artistic practice you can maneuver the camera probe into the cap into the nest chamber mm -hmm. and you can determine what is in the nest so is there an adult does the is there a chick is there an adult and chick whatever and so we use that technology heavily to track what happens in burrows so at the end of the season we can say what proportion of burrows were occupied of those how many successfully hatched a chick of those how many successfully fledged a young, a, mm -hmm. a fledgling. And with that information, we can compare year after year and between islands to see if, if populations at different parts of their range are doing differently, okay. how they're performing. So, so that's part of it. And then another piece of it is diet. So diet is, we all need to eat, we all need to eat well. And if we're raising kids, we need our kids to eat well. And so that's true for the birds. And so diet also gives us a lot of insight into not just how the birds are doing, but also the conditions in the, in the marine environment because they are indicators of what happens in the marine environment. So you follow populations and diet. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, do you look at, once you find out what they're eating, do you look for populations of those feed fish or does somebody else, does the fishery people do that? Or how does that work? That is one of the big challenges uh, because th that sort of work is really expensive. It requires boats, it requires survey time. So we're dependent on what essentially the agencies are doing. And so NOAA does surveys, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife does surveys, but really focused surveys on certain species or certain areas. So 
we definitely don't have, the birds are really our best metric of what's going on with the forage fish. Uh, because understandably, the agencies are most interested in the commercially valuable species like herring. Um, and rhinoceros auklets eat, you know, 15 to 20 different species of fish quite happily. And only a few of those are going to be tracked by, by an agency. Uh, are puffins more particular? Do you think that's part of the problem? That's our suspicion. Um, we have a bit of evidence that suggests that. So uh, rhinoceros auklets seem to be remarkably plastic in their foraging or flexible. They'll, most year, it's, it really, it, it's pretty invariant. Their breeding success tends to be consistent year after year after year. They're very much blue collar workers. They just, they get in, they're not glamorous, they get the work done, and they do it really well. And tufted puffins really give the sense of being kind of prima donnas, They're you know, little divas, sensitive, the divas, yes. And, and if, not, if, if everything isn't just quite right, um, it, uh, it causes problems for them. So we are looking at that, and the evidence we have thus far does suggest that puffins have a narrower diet. Uh, mm -hmm. that they're more specialized on a, on a smaller range of prey. And in that scenario, a species that is more of a specialist is inherently going to be more vulnerable because they're dependent on good conditions for fewer species. Sure. So that gives me a little bit of a feel of what you're doing in Washington. You spent extensive amounts of time uh, in South America. Uh, and. Uh, and it sounds like you've traveled a lot in South America. Tell me about your research there and, and just your experiences there. Yeah, so I've been, um, I've been interested in, in Latin America for since I was in college. And um, I had a chance to do a little bit of research as a field assistant down there as an undergraduate. Uh, and it was always in the back of my mind. So as I was finishing up my PhD, uh, at UC Davis, which was actually based on Antarctic research on tube-nosed seabirds, on petrels um, that breed in the Antarctic, I was looking about for where next, like what do I want to do next? And I really was interested in getting, in shifting more into applied conservation research. So I, I started looking around for places that had conservation needs with seabirds where there were gaps, where people weren't actively working and where I might be able to make a, a contribution. And I landed on, uh, metaphorically and then later physically, on uh, the Juan Fernandez Islands in Chile, um, really drawn initially there by the seabird community. So it's six species of seabirds, very poorly studied. It was recognized in the 80s as a globally significant spot for seabird research and conservation and almost nothing had been done there on that entire community of seabirds and so i went down there for the first time in 1999 so describe for me the the san juan uh, uh san fernandez the juan fernandez islands juan fernandez <laughs> islands uh, wh where are they and just tell me you know what that what that is sure so the the juan fernandez islands they're chilean islands they're uh they're uh, volcanic in origin, so they've never been connected to the continent. They're true oceanic islands, and they're about you know, they're about 700 kilometers. And those of you that don't speak metric, that's about 400 miles or so off the central coast of Chile. So the same latitude of Valparaíso. So not down in southern Chile in the fjords, but central Chile, way offshore. Um, and uh, they're 
an isolated archipelago of three, two large islands, one smaller island, and then a few rock stacks. Um, How many people? The, the, uh, today, the population is about between 900 and 1,000 people. On all three islands, or no? Just there's o there's one permanent um, community on the main island of Robinson Crusoe. The smallest of the three islands, Santa Clara, which is just off the western tip of uh, Robinson Crusoe, is uninhabited. Uh, it's about 220 hectares, about 500 acres or so. And uh, the third island, the most distant one, the farthest offshore, which is about 100 miles west of the other two, is um, Selkirk, Alejandro Selkirk Island. That one has a seasonal fishing community. So folks from uh, Robinson go out typically in September and are based there and live there for about eight months a year and then return for the winter months. Okay. Uh, so you uh, fell in love with these islands, and tell me your story there. Yes, I, I, you're right. I did. I, my, my, my research and my professional career has been defined by things I just fall in love with. Um, so I went there for the first time in '99 to basically do a pilot study to see if uh, if there were possibilities. It is a national park, so I needed to talk with the park as well and see if there was interest from their perspective in having someone come in and start to do seabird related conservation work. Mm -hmm. They were very receptive to it. They uh, they do great work in the park, but they're, they're overworked. They don't have the resources. And so they didn't have anybody actively working on birds in general, really. Their focus was really on the endemic or the unique plants of the archipelago. Um, and these islands, although they don't have the, the recognition of, of the Galapagos, are in some respects just as significant from a global biodiversity perspective. Um, Two-thirds of all the native plants there are endemic to those islands, found wow. nowhere else in the world. Eight of the 15 bird species are endemic to the archipelago, again, meaning you can't find them anywhere else. So. Um, insects, nobody knows. Really high levels of endemism, but nobody's actually done a comprehensive survey uh, to know what exactly is out there for them. So from a naturalist perspective, from a conservation perspective, uh, for my passion with seabirds, it just seemed amazing. Um, and then on top of that, the community there, I have really truly connected with and fallen in love with over the years and really feel a part of. Uh, thankfully, and so that has also drawn me back consistently over the years, and it's now been over 20 years since I began working there. Isn't that fabulous? When do you get there? How much time do you get to spend there? I usually go. I go at least once a year, uh, sometimes twice a year. Uh, it's changed over the years as my position has changed at the university. As uh, a, a daughter entered my life, I, I'm not as willing to go for months at a time as I was for or earlier on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I usually go over the winter semester break. So uh, for three to four weeks uh, between late December and mid-January. Mm -hmm. And then some years I'll also go for another three or four week stint in July, August. Okay. Uh, do you have uh, research assistants there? Are people doing full-time work there? I think I remember you talked to our ABC Birding Club uh, two or three, three or four years ago, a while ago, mm -hmm. and that's why I had you on my list to talk to. Uh, but uh, I know that you've worked with the local community to 
get buy-in as well as expertise. T tell me that story. Yes, and I think that to me is almost the, the most exciting and impactful piece of the work that we've done down there is that in many respects we knew what the, what we already knew at the beginning what we needed to do. We needed to get rid of invasive mammals and we needed to get rid of invasive plants, you know, non-native plants and animals that are impacting the, the natural ecosystems of the archipelago. We didn't need to spend 15 years studying things to figure that out. Right. But you need community buy-in. And so from the outset, we really were, in, we've been intentional about uh, engaging with the community, making sure that they're stakeholders, that they could participate, um, that we learned from them too. We came to learn and listen to them. You know, these are people uh, who spend their lives on these islands, and many of those folks know the islands better than we ever can. And so it would be foolish to not take advantage of that local knowledge and that depth of knowledge that the community collectively possesses. Give, so, give me some examples of, of you know, direction and help that the local expertise you mentioned that give me examples oh just simple things like you know we can go to the i remember the the when i arrived in 99 you know i, I knew what i wanted to do and, and get out to some of these seabird colonies just to get a feel for them and spend some time out there and assess what what they were like and what the opportunities were there and obviously i had no idea where they were and sure. so i sat down with the park rangers and i said what do you guys know about pink-footed shearwater colonies? And to the meter, they gave me directions. You, you need to go to Vaqueria, you go up the valley this way, you'll go up the trail, you'll see this ridge that's denuded to the right, and you ascend that ridge for a short while, and there are burrows on the left in the forest, and, and so forth. So it was that level of detail. So even though the burrows weren't necessarily their principal focus, you know, they, although, and although they don't consider their knowledge to be all that sophisticated, they have a profound understanding of the natural systems of the, the islands. Um, cool. Another really cool example, which again, I think just speaks to the, the, um, the insightfulness of folks. Not, not all people, some people, you know, aren't as attentive to these things, but you learn who, who's cued in and who's, who's really sharp and attentive. Um, so th I've spent a bunch of time on the, the, the outermost island of Selkirk, and I've gone out on the, the fishing boats with them a fair bit, and I'm mm -hmm. good friends with a bunch of the fishermen. And I, I would just ask them questions. You know, where do you see these species? Which species do you see? Can you describe them? And, and we would just talk throughout the day as we are circumnavigating the island and they're hauling lobster traps and I'm giving them moral support and trying to entertain them. Um, didn't have a lot to offer professionally except talking about seabirds and marine stuff. But uh, there are two species of seabirds that are endemic to Selkirk. They're petrels, the Juan Fernandez petrel and Steiniger's petrel. They breed only on that island. And they're different sizes, so you can distinguish them fairly easily when you get a bit of an eye for them. And as I was out with a couple of these friends one day, I, I remarked on, oh, I, you know, we don't, I'm not seeing any, I never see Steinigers over here on this part of the island, um, you know, offshore. And they said, oh, no, you don't see them around here. The only place you ever see them is around on the southwest corner. And I said, oh, interesting. So I, you know, being kind of empirically minded and I trusted them, I was like, oh, I'm going to keep an eye out for this. And sure enough, they were exactly where they said they were. And 
now that I understand the island better and the colonies better, it makes total sense because these are birds that are breeding near the summit of the island at over 1,100 meters, so mm. 3,600 feet or so. Sure. It's a very steep, uh, mountainous island. And these birds are following this valley up to their breeding colonies. Mm -hmm. And so they're used, they're funneling, they're, they're coming in, they know where they ascend, and they kind of concentrate offshore of the base of this valley and wait until darkness because they all, you know, being in the colony at night, I could see that they all came up from that side of the ridge mm -hmm. consistently. I'm like, that makes, makes sense, total sense. And that was just, they didn't need to make that observation. It doesn't matter to them where those birds are, but they knew it. They just knew. They just know. Yeah. You have some uh, some uh, local employees, of volunteers, some people you sort of recruited from the community to work with you, don't you? Yeah. So we so early on, I recognized that if this were truly to be self-sustaining over time, it couldn't depend on me being able to spend four months a year down there and people from out outside and away coming down to do the work that it needed to be grounded in the community for a number of reasons. One is it's just a lot more efficient. It allows us to work year round. Whereas when it was me coming down seasonally with some colleagues, most of the work was done just in that four month window. So we can work year round, but much more importantly than that is that we wanted to build capacity in the community so that awareness and understanding uh, would be kind of, it would have a ripple effect and it would spread throughout this very closely connected community. Right. And that's a way to help get buy-in and commitment from the community is to show that we are genuinely interested in them, in their community and their well-being, and we're not just there for the conservation side of things. So we started working with the local community pretty much from the outset. And over the years, we trained people, we've created positions for them. And right now, and this is, I think, one of the things that I'm, I'm really proudest of, of the work that we've done there, our entire team in Chile that does that work is Chilean. So we have a team on the island, we have two local coordinators, and then we have a team of, it's seasonally, it varies seasonally, but from three to five people. Mm -hmm. They're all islanders. We trained them. They've worked with us now for a number of years. We have uh, on another island, Isla Mocha, which is to the south down past Concepcion. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been working down there for about 10 years now. We have a couple of islanders there that are staff. And then we have people in, on mainland Chile, uh, mainly in Valparaiso and in Santiago that uh, are kind of staff that go to the field but also help manage things remotely. So, you know, we actually, in the small nonprofit that I work with, Oikonos, that's now become our biggest program, is our Chile program. Very cool. I'm not familiar with Oikonos. Tell me about that. So Oikonos is a, a small nonprofit, Oikonos Ecosystem Knowledge, and we we were founded in 2002. I came on, I wasn't one of the founders, but I came on early on. Uh, when I was trying to decide whether to, where I was really committed to Juan Fernandez, I had formed a small organization and I wasn't sure whether it was sustainable for me to transition it to a 501c3 nonprofit mm -hmm. or what to do with it. 
And serendipitously, I saw some colleagues at a conference. They had just founded Oikonos. They were aware of the work that we were doing in Chile and were really interested and it just really, it aligned Perfect very well. Perfect and so we just folded in our work into Oikonos. And um, so Oikonos works, um, it, we're a small organization. It's just, we have no central office, it's virtual. Uh, we have folks in Hawaii, I'm here in Washington, we have folks in California, and then Chile. Um, but we've also worked, uh, we've had some work in New Zealand um, and in a variety of other places. Cool, cool. Uh, so is that where a lot of the funding comes from? They do fund, this organization does fundraising or do you get grants? Or how, how do you fund we, this stuff? We do, <laughs> yeah. There's, there, we don't really have a development office. We are, we are the researchers, we're, we're the development office. Uh, so it, it's mainly grant driven. We do have, we are trying to build a donor uh, a donor community as well but most of it has been grants from uh, from foundations from other nonprofits from agency government agencies it's a it's a it's really a, a quite a mishmash of funding um, and it's a constant struggle because no one wants to you know the work for example our work in Juan Fernandez requires decades of investment and no organization, no agency, no foundation is going to want to commit to something for decades. Um, and we're not trying to string things along. You know, to get rid of invasive species requires a long, long time horizon. Mm -hmm. um, community education and empowerment, uh, that requires, Generation. is generate, exactly. And so the ongoing challenge for us is like many nonprofits that are working in communities over the long term is to continue to generate the funds to, to support that work. So life for the indigenous population on these islands has to be a challenge. I mean, it's not like they can go to the 7-Eleven and get uh, groceries or whatever, that they're gotta be, I'm sure, bringing some supplies onto the island, but a lot, they must grow their own food, and, and if they do animal husbandry, that's gotta be an issue, because don't seabirds nest in grassy fields, it would be perfect place to graze your sheep or something? <laughs> Yes, yes. So it is. And it's been interesting. I've been working there long enough that I've actually seen quite a significant transition in the community. So when I started there in 99, the islands were still considerably more isolated um, than they are today. So they're, they've, they have a freighter that comes in. But 20 years ago, the freighter would come every month to six weeks, kind of mm -hmm. essentially when it felt like it. So people would order stuff but there was no guarantee of exactly when it would get there and even what condition it would come in. Sometimes the, the fridge systems on the freighter, this was an old freighter, you know, the refrigerator system would, would break down and, and the perishables would be spoiled by the time it took, you know, they, it takes three days to navigate out there. Mm -hmm. um, today, things have improved a lot. Um, and, and you can fly directly to and from the continent in small planes. Mm. It's expensive. It's not how people move produce and things because it's too expensive there are local shops so life has gotten more comfortable for people in the last 20 years but but it is still a fairly it's a small isolated community has the population increased dramatically or no it's or de decre decreased no, no it's actually increased um, I think as the isolation has decreased it's made it more accessible 
and more people from the mainland. So 20 years ago, the only people who were not islanders living on the island were were public functionaries, people working for the local municipality Mm -hmm. in support positions. And now, uh, I think, and the population at that time was in the 600s, between six and 700. Virtually all of that increase up to 900 to 1,000 in the last 20 years has been people moving from the mainland out to the islands. And maybe less uh, youth leaving, I would guess. And, And as, yes, and as opportunities their professional opportunities are limited a little less so now because of they're a, they're a bit more connected digitally even so the the Wi-Fi connection out there uh, which you know it's remarkable they even have uh, I think so too yeah. uh, some sort of satellite obviously. it is satellite yeah but that uh, it's not good and so that is a, a, a constraint but they just don't have a lot of, in, a, in any small isolated community, your professional opportunities are going to be limited. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. And I do know young folks that, you know, that I've watched grow up and they're now adults and some manage to stay and carve out the niche for themselves and others stay on the mainland uh, just because they want to do, and the world is open for them more. And so they can say, wow, I want to be a graphic designer. Okay, you can do that, but you're probably not going to make much of a living doing that on Juan Fernandez. So, um, folks like that will probably wind up. Yeah. yeah, fishing is a primary cash industry. It is. Yeah, they have. Um, it's all artisanal fishing, and uh, this is a remarkable thing. Uh, about eight to eight years or so ago, the fishing community came together and uh, decided they wanted to establish a marine protected area around the islands to protect their artisanal fishing. And this was generated by the local community. We participated in the process, kind of just as support, but these were islanders who said, we need to do this for ourselves. We we need to, we recognize that pressures are only going to increase from outside and we need to be proactive about this. So they had this vision and they now have it federally decreed. And so the restrictions are significant and only island residents are allowed to fish and they need to fish using certain technologies. Um, so they've intentionally restricted to technologies such that it re- retains that artisanal or traditional fishing feel. They can't wipe out the populations of fish. Exactly. Um, so the main, the main fishery is for a spiny lobster, a, an endemic spiny lobster. Um, and that's a big, it's a, an export market. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done a really good job of managing the fishery and they, uh, they've allied themselves with the slow food movement and they've done some really, some really forward thinking, made some very forward thinking moves to try to ensure the sustainability of that fishery over time. Way cool. Uh, you said there are eight endemics on the island. Didn't you tell me eight endemics? Yes. Tell me th- th- what those are and just a, a little snippet of description about them. Sure. So there, this, of the six seabird species that are on the island, four of them are Chilean endemics, and two of those are Juan Fernandez endemics. Uh, so the two that are out on the two petrels that are out on mm-hmm. Selkirk. So that's two of the six. Um, the other two that I'll probably focus most of my comments sure. on are single island endemic land birds that are critically endangered. Uh, so one of them is a hummingbird, the Juan Fernandez fire crown, which is a stunning, stunning bird. Um, for the listeners, 
it's worth Googling or whatever. Maybe you can send me a picture and I'll post it on my blog post Ab associated with this. Absolutely. Cool. I would be delighted to do that, Ed. Check um, out the blog post. It'll be there. There. There we go. But a, a, a truly stunning hummingbird. Um, and uh, the males and the females are so different in their plumage and their size that early scientists thought they were two different species. Uh, so the, the males are... Uh, kind of a rufous or brick red color with this iridescent golden crown that just in the right light it stops a conversation when you see it. it mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll, I have a few pictures that capture that's that a little great. bit. Way cool. um, so that's so you got a, a hummingbird. So yep. So that's on the island of Robinson Crusoe, the, the main, main the main island, and we. And remarkably, again, this is a species that should be a global icon for conservation. It's a beautiful, captivating, um, charismatic species. And yet, very little had been done on it. There'd been a few studies, but nothing sustained over time. So that our, our project, which began with a focus on seabirds, organically expanded to try to address needs that were identified in our conversations with the local community and the park rangers where we would, and we still do to this day, sit down and say, on what should we be focusing our efforts? Where are the needs from your perspective? Right. And the fire crown came out um, in one of those early conversations. So we've been working with that species very intensively for over a decade now. Nice. The other critically endangered uh, land bird which is also again, single island endemic is found on Selkirk, the, the most distant island. Mm -hmm. And that's the Masafuera rayadito. Um, and that is a small insectivore, kind of think uh, almost like a chickadee or something, you know, a, uh, active like that or a bush tit, um, very active insect gleaner off the foliage, uh, also critically endangered. And again, a little bit of work, discontinuous work had been done on that, essentially censusing them periodically. And we've been working on them fairly intensively for the last decade, including installing artificial nest boxes to see if habitat might have been a, a limiting, breeding habitat might have been a limiting factor. So we're, our, our, uh, our remit on the islands has definitely broadened over time. Very cool, very cool. Um, so you've done a lot of work on, on, the, uh, on the islands. You told me that you, uh, you're in your initial uh, postdoctoral work or whatever you worked in Antarctica? I did, yes. I did my PhD research in, in Antarctica and uh, that was a, a remarkable experience. I had the I had a fellowship the year following my graduation from college and in that in the course of that fellowship I had the opportunity to serve as a field assistant for an Australian who was doing research on Adelie penguins. Um, through the Australian Antarctic mm -hmm. Division. So I jumped at that opportunity, spent several months down in Antarctica with Michael Whitehead, helping him with uh, the, his Adelie penguin work. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I had opportunities to kind of cast around and look at the seabird community. And that, that led me to discover this community of petrels, four species of, of petrels. They're called fulmarine petrels. And I, I left that experience saying, that's what I want to do my PhD on. I just came back with so many questions and, and also having fallen in love with Antarctica, the place and that community of birds. I just thought I, can't, I couldn't imagine 
a more exciting opportunity for a PhD than to than to work on that community, which again was woefully understudied. Oh yes. So that is, I can you can imagine why it's understudied. Tough place to get to, tough place to work. Tell me about that research. Where did, what school did you do it through? Where did you get the whole story? Yeah. So I, I managed to convince. Uh, Bless his heart, Wes Weathers, my mentor and uh, major professor at UC Davis uh, in the ecology program. He, uh, he didn't work on seabirds at the time. He was willing to take me on as a grad student and allow me to embark on this crazy uh, attempt to work down there. We got National Science Foundation funding. So I was able to spend three consecutive seasons working with the Australians. And the reason I worked with them was because they had I, I could access co communities, islands, where all four species nested together. So I was able to do these cool com comparative studies of all four species at the same time. And the four species are? And the four species are the Antarctic or Southern Fulmar, mm -hmm. the Antarctic Petrel, Cape Petrel, and arguably my favorite bird of all time, the Snow Petrel. Mm. Super um, cool. And, and remarkably, it, it, to me, it kind of came full circle for me because when I, when I first fell in love with seabirds as an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to spend a summer, the first of, it turned out, multiple summers on an island in the Bay of Fundy that was owned by the college I attended, Bowdoin College. It was field research didn't. I went to Bowdoin. I'm a Bowdoin grad. I graduated Bowdoin in 1976. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No way. I didn't know that. Very cool. Yes. Yeah, so polar bear. I'm a polar bear. Cool. Cool. <laughs> uh, so Chuck Huntington who was a biology professor. Right. Yeah, it so, has a building named after him there, I think. There, yeah, so he was, anyway, oh, we'll have to, that's another, we'll have to talk about that more. That's amazing. So, uh, so Bowdoin has Kent Island. Mm -hmm. um, it was gifted yeah. to them in the 1930s. And I had a chance to work up there with Chuck Huntington on Leech's Storm Petrels. And that's what got me into seabirds. It was game over. I, I saw Storm Petrels. I, I started to imagine the mysteries of their life and I was captivated. But anyway, during that first summer, uh, and being just a seabird nerd already, I would spend you know hours reading through Peter Harrison's Seabird Guide, Guide to Seabirds of the World. Sure. And I, at one point I came across snow petrels and I just looked at the image and thought, oh my gosh, this bird is incredible. What a beautiful bird. It is a pure white bird with black bill, black eyes. Uh, just, just so graceful and aesthetically pleasing. And I thought, where, you know, what's their range? I wonder if I could see them. So I went to the range maps at the back of the book and they are truly Antarctic. They never leave Southern Ocean waters. And at the time I thought, oh, what a shame. I'll never see one of those. And then, you know, a decade later or so, well, not that quite, I guess it was eight, seven or eight years later, there I was studying them for my PhD. How cool was that? Um, which was remarkable, just how that all came together for me. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so you worked down there for three seasons. The yes. season there is short, I'm guessing? It's actually, at that time at least, it was pretty long. We would leave in October by ship. Um, by icebreaker mm -hmm. and deploy to the three Australian bases, well, usually um, four if we went by Macquarie Island, but uh, Casey, 
Mawson and Davis. I was ironically at UC, da at UC Davis and I was doing my work at Davis Station. Uh, <laughs> but um, so it was several weeks down and then November, usually in the field, November, December, January, February, mm -hmm. and sometimes into March. So nice, nice length of time. That's, I'm assuming, the breeding season there. Yes, capturing the whole breeding season right up until fledging. Um, so nice. they have a, the, the, one of the characteristics of petrels and albatrosses and shearwaters is they have an unusually long uh, incubation period and chick period. So they're, the chicks are very slow growing. Um, usually over three months, wow. depending on the species. For some albatrosses, it's well over four months. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I was interested in at the time was this phenomenon that the Antarctic breeding species actually produce chicks in 50% of the time that you would predict for a petrel of their size. Hmm. So they were doing something very differently than their colleagues farther to the north. Right, so they grow faster. So they grow significantly faster. And I was interested in kind of the energetics of that. How, yeah. did, how did they do that? Was it that the parents were just provisioning them like crazy? Was it that the chicks were doing something different and how they were using that energy that they were being provided? So that was part of the series of questions I was, I was interested did in. Did you answer any of them? Well, it seems like, so the answer is kind of, I guess. <laughs> um, so, we thought that they might be allocating their energy differently and it doesn't really look like they're doing that what it looks like is that that petrels and shearwaters kind of have a fair bit of what we call plasticity or flexibility in their growth rates and that there are advantages if you are an albatross or a petrel that is feeding hundreds to thousands of miles away from your breeding colony and your right. chick you may be gone for 5 10 15 days on a single foraging trip mm -hmm. that the chick's energy demands should match that so if a chick needs to be fed every day that's not going to work gonna it's going to starve to death so there's an so there's adaptive value in having these long extended nestling periods because it gives the chick some buffer the right. chick can deal with not being fed for four, five, six days in a row. Mm -hmm. um, but when they get fed, boy, do they get fed. Yeah. Um, Talk about fast and binge feeding. Huh? Exactly. But in the Antarctic, because of the conditions, you know, the weather conditions and food availability, it goes from you know, very little food to a huge peak and then it drops pretty quickly. So there's this narrow window of opportunity to successfully raise chicks and they seem to be pushing it as as basically they are growing as fast as they possibly can for a petrol the whole time and so they i would assume they don't go so far to get food and come back more often their foraging trips are shorter the chicks are fed more frequently the parents aren't necessarily working harder but they're just coming back more regularly yeah. exactly a thousand Four hundred miles away, they feed forty miles away, or, or yeah, or a couple of hundred miles away. Which for you know a shearwater, you can cover in a few hours. Yeah. You know they fly, or in a petrel, they fly so quickly. Yes. So. So that works. Yeah. So that um, that experience was certainly one of the most remarkable experiences in my life, having the the privilege to spend three three years, you know, working three seasons, uh, working on a remote island, 
uh, just immersed in petrels. There were there was a, uh, a deli penguin colonies on the island. Um, you know, we saw leopard seals and and Weddell seals and emperor penguins and uh, all sorts of amazing natural history on top of the you know the, just the fascinating research we were doing. Incredibly cool. So Peter, you uh, you have uh, done that research. Where is that research headed? Where is your research, uh, your tube nose passion? Where is that research headed in the next decade? Ooh, the next decade. <laughs> I wish How I were. About tomorrow. I was going to say, I wish I were that far a forward thinker. Uh, so here in Washington, you know, we don't have a big tube nose community of birds. I mean, there's the two, uh, the two petrel storm petrel species mm-hmm. that breed on the outer coast that we're starting to do a little bit of basic work on. Uh, just because I love tube noses so much, I, I really have to keep my, I sure. have to take advantage of those opportunities. Although. Realistically, here in Washington, uh, you know, the main focus will continue to be tufted puffins and rhinoceros auklets, and then mm-hmm. secondarily, some of these other species, um, because we are interested in in understanding them. You look at multiple species, you get more insight into also what's going on in the marine environment. It's not a single focus. Right. You're seeing it through multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, as these birds have different lives at sea. Uh, their performance, their survival, their diet, all reflect kind of different, give you different insights into what's happening in the ocean. Sure. Um, down in Chile, um, you know, the, the work there is just kind of a series of moving on from conservation activity to conservation activity. Um, all six of the species that breed in Juan Fernandez are tube noses. They're all petrol. They're, there's four species of petrels, one species of shearwater, and one species of storm petrel. Um, and they all have conservation needs to some degree, and so we're just going to continue to work on our long-term planning. Right now, we're, you, earlier on, you mentioned something about um, the possible conflict with uh, like raising food and so forth on the islands and, and conservation, and, right. and there, that, that was timely because we're actually just putting in a replacement fence that, for a very artisanal fence that we installed about 10 years ago to keep cattle out of a pink-footed shearwater breeding colony. So these, again, are bre- they're burrow-nesting seabirds. Right. Um, Cow and steps on the burrow, it's toast. Exactly. Yeah. And so, at best, you wind up with damaged burrows, but at worst, you can wind up with adults or, and or chicks that are killed just inadvertently if a cow steps right on the nest chamber and collapses it. So. So we, um, we built an initial fence. It actually worked quite well given the budget that we had, mm-hmm. but it, was, it needed to be replaced. And so we're right now, this month, finishing up a replacement fence, which will not only keep cattle out, but also European rabbits, Ooh. which are not native, um, feral cats. Um, and so within everywhere. that- cats Yes. Everywhere yeah, cats they're, they're, yeah, they're terrible. Um, they're, they're a, oh, I mean, cats are, amazing creatures, but when they're in the wrong places, they're devastating. Um, and so that fence is about to come online. We'll remove the rats, the rabbits and the cats from within the fence. And then we'll also start to do um, outplanting of native plants to do some habitat restoration within the fence. So how big a fence area are you talking about? It is uh, a couple of acres, a few acres. So relatively and, manageable. Yeah, it is. And, and part of that was budget constraint. And part of it is topography where we could get the fence and mm-hmm. actually build it such that it was secure. Um, but we did, we did uh, high grade the location. So we have the core of the colony 
protected within this fence. And a fence is not a, a permanent solution, but until such time that eradications can be successfully proposed and, and undertaken, fences are a, are a really important conservation tool. Sure. So um, we've got some more fence ideas for some of the islands to, again, protect vulnerable areas that are kind of well easily protected, continue to work with the local community. Um, you know, they're, it's really, again, coming back to the community, it's just really inspiring to see how much they've embraced so at a community level uh, so many of the things that we've tried to instill in the community. And, you know, we now have, um, we're developing a community science program with some of the fishermen who after we offered some we offered free workshops on seabird biology and identification and some of the some of the fishermen got so into it and they all have their phones with them these days that they take pictures and they share pictures with us on yeah. WhatsApp and so we thought let's formalize this a little bit let's actually turn this into a community science thing uh, for those that are interested sure. and so we've got a handful of lobster fishermen who are really keen to take pictures, record some very simple information while they're out fishing. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, because we don't really have a, we have anecdotal information about what species that don't breed on the islands use the waters around the islands. Sure. And so these, these folks are out there 100, 150 days a year. And they are seeing stuff that no one else is going to see. Sure. So for those that are inclined to do so, hey, can you snap a picture? Yeah. And or if you recognize it, write down the species. You know, if you've taken our, and sure. we've created little um, laminated guides for some right. of the common yeah. species. And that gets them to feel that, I mean, they are contributing in a very real sense. Sure. Um, but it also gives them the sense that they're participating, Ownership. you know, that yeah. they are really engaged in this. And then that has a, a ripple effect too. Totally cool. It is so fun to talk to somebody with passion for what they do. I love it. You know, passion is you know, what drives the world. And it, it's really cool. It, it really does. Yeah. So you you said you went to Bowdoin and, and that took, did a lot of birding while you're there. It sounds like. Have you been a birder from a, a, from a wee tot or when did you get into birding? No, I, I, I wish I had a story that, you know, I was using binoculars from my crib or something like that. But no, I, I came to, I really got interested in birds in an, in an intentional way in college. Okay. Um, prior to that, you know, I was always interested in natural history mm -hmm. ever since I was a little kid and particularly marine biology. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to college thinking I was going to be a marine biologist. Mm -hmm. and, and it was really this professor, uh, this mentor, Chuck Huntington, who uh, gave me the opportunity to get to know Leech's storm petrels. And that, through that, it was really this fascination and this growing love for seabirds that then broadened very quickly to, wow. Birding in general. It opened my eyes to birds as particularly remarkable organisms. Do you do much birding just on a week-to-week -week basis locally? I, I do. I, I, I don't go out to bird per se, but... Mm -hmm. I go out to be a naturalist, and right. birding for me is a key piece of that. And and I'm a really keen sea kayaker, so I spend a lot of time in my sea kayak in the region, mm -hmm. and I never go without my binoculars and I, you know, and my camera. And Very cool. um, and I just I love being on the and again the, the love with seabirds as well. But um, well, you, you know, chose a great place to be a sea kayaker. This whole 
Puget Sound area is fabulous. It is. It's a great region in the outer coast. I mean, there's just lifetimes worth of paddling in, in this region. Um, but I mean, my office looks out on President's Woods and I can bird from my, when I'm in my office here on campus, I can bird from my office. I just sit at my desk and have a pair of binoculars there and look out and, and see some great birds right there. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Birding, I, I was reading that birding has uh, uh, been a, a common new hobby for people during this COVID pandemic because you can literally do it from your, you know, backyard window or you set up a bird feeder and a lot of people are starting to get into birding who might not have uh, done that previously. Yes, I, I've read the, I've read some stats too. It's impressive and I have a, a friend of mine who has a, not the best timing unfortunately, but they're opening a coffee shop downtown and uh, they they have an online presence, Campfire Coffee, okay. um, Quincy and Whitney. And uh, I we were chatting about, we, we want to do some stuff with um, disadvantaged communities here locally mm -hmm. in Tacoma and, and getting kids outdoors in mm -hmm. general right. and also to do some natural, do camping but also natural history and birding mm -hmm. and uh, I, I had the idea, he has a little blog on, on, their, on their website mm -hmm. and I offered to just write a little, a few paragraphs about natural history in an urban context and right. birding that you know what and i wrote this in march or april you know so we're like we're home well, send me the url i'll put it in the, my oh okay post too. and so part of it was to say to people you know birding is so accessible you can do it at any level you could say i don't care what the species is i just want to appreciate that that's a beautiful yellow bird that's in my bush yeah um or you could get into fine details about you know when when toeys molt their tertials you know mm -hmm. like it's it's that there's, full range of detail range of detail you can take yeah. um but i also wanted to let folks know that it's accessible and that i wanted them to know about the merlin app which is such it is a so game changer it's, well when i go to latin america oh my goodness yes it's just oh yeah so, so helpful it's a remarkable resource and it's free and so you know it it removes some of those potential economic barriers that you know so i i wrote about that at the end of it oh. and and quincy has since said that he's had a handful of people that have ordered from him say hey you know i read that blog and and we're using merlin and i told my family about it and but good that's that's totally what we cool. want um, totally cool and i've done something similar with my daughter's elementary school where uh, once they went to remote learning, I suggested that we do just kind of like family naturalist activities. And so we had a handful of Zoom meetings um, mm -hmm. for parents and kids, mainly kids were on it. And we just talked about, it was, and it wound up being mainly about birds, mm -hmm. but I gave them a quick kind of kid-friendly tutorial. Mm -hmm. um, I told them about Merlin. I encouraged them to you know, get their parents to put it on their phones or their tablets, right. and kids were using it. Um, Is that and, cool? And so um, it, it really, you know, in this challenging time, I think for so many of us, uh, just having that connection to the natural world is grounding, it's settling, it, it's real. Um, it is. And it can let us breathe. For sure, for sure. Peter, I'm gonna wrap up with giving you a chance to just uh, lay out details of how people can reach out to you, how they can, uh, how they can uh, support your not-for-profit if they choose to, that sort of thing. Well, thank you, Ed. So, yes, yeah, so, so my name is Peter Hodum, um, and I can give you the details if you want to put it on the blog post as well. Right. Uh, you can find me a couple of ways. One is uh, through the University of Puget Sound. 
Uh, so that's just pugetsound.edu. I'm in the biology department, um, and you can find me there. I'm not going to give you the email, the email address, address over is there. there. I mean, yes, it, the email address is, it, yeah. is um, on my faculty page there. Exactly. Uh, you can also find me uh, through our nonprofit. So Oikonos, it's O-I-K-O-N-O-S, and our website is simply oikonos.org. Um, I'm contacted, I have an email through them as well. And that summarizes, we're actually redoing our website. So All we're right. kind of in the process, I think is going to be um, a lot snazzier. Um, but you can read a little bit more about our work there. Um, there are, if you're interested in, in, um, in supporting some of our work, there are ways to donate directly on the website. Um, and if you're just curious about any of the work, you know, please do. I, I, hopefully you can tell I, I love talking about this work. I really feel that one of my reasons for being on this planet is to advocate for seabirds um, and, you know, the need for their conservation. Um, it's petrels, albatrosses, and shearwaters are one of the most endangered groups of birds in the world. Um, that whole order is, uh, is highly threatened at, at uh, at the level of tube noses um, and seabirds are in general are amongst the most threatened general categories of birds in the world so there's a lot of serious threats confronting them in today's world and because they spend their lives at sea and they are remote and they they're kind of mysterious um, and not that many of us have the privilege to see them soaring over the ocean um, you know in, in all their grace and their beauty um, we don't know that much about them, but they really do need our attention and, um, and, and our advocacy. So, um, I know that was a, a bit of a, that's a, exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, Thanks so much. A bit of a this conclusion. This just brings me like, I feel like I've got a thousand questions I still want to ask, but they're more on the technical side. And maybe that'll be another episode where we can talk about conservation and uh, biology of of, uh, of tube noses in general, because they have this dynamic soaring thing that is so hard for me to wrap my brain around. It is, well, and, let's do that, Ed. Yeah, I would be delighted is, to have an opportunity. That sort of stuff is so cool. And they feed, and so many, some of them patter on the water, some of them swim way underwater to get, it's crazy stuff. So we will make another episode sometime with Peter Hodem from UPS. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you very much, Ed. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Well, that wraps up the Berbiner podcast episode number 70 with Peter Hodum. What a fun guest. I really had a nice time with this one. I hope you liked it too. If you enjoyed this, please leave a rating or review on the Apple Podcast Store. I have learned that that's easier for me to say than it is for you to do. You would think that you could do that right from where you're listening on your phone, but you can't. You have to go to the search function on the bottom, uh, search for the Bird Banner podcast, click on that, scroll down to where it leaves rating and reviews, and leave a review. So if you could go through that hassle of a process, it would really help me get recognized on the, on the Apple platform. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, Help me out. Leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the Bird Banner Podcast wherever you get your podcast feeds. And I'll make sure I leave in the podcast notes and on the blog post on the birdbanner.com website lots of additional information. This is going to be an especially good blog associated with this episode because Peter sent me some photographs. and I'm going to show you some cool pictures of a lot of these birds from the Juan Fernandez Islands. Make sure you check that out. And until next time, good birding, good day.